0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! No. I am the father. Oh. Run.
1: It's in the box!
0: You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you hold to hell! Hello!
2: Hello, and welcome to another Slate spoiler special podcast. This week, we are talking about Portrait of a Lady on Fire, the new film from Céline Sciamma, which opens, fittingly, on Valentine's Day, as it is a love story. And with me in the Slate studio to talk about Portrait of a Lady on Fire are June Thomas, the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Hello, June. Hey, Dana. And Dan Kois, also joining me here in the studio, which is nice, as you're usually in D.C. You are now a Slate... Culture writer, Écithora. podcaster.
0: journalist. Bonjour. Bonjour.
1: Bonjour.
2: L'état, c'est moi. Just thought I'd get that in there.
1: While we're doing the French bit. It's all about un certain regard, no? This whole movie. <laughs> right. Am I right? Uh, Am I right?
2: Although it's it s- did not win the certain regard award at Cannes, C'est right? It did win the queer palm, which I didn't know existed until this year. And this is the first time a woman has won the queer wow. palm. And a wow.
0: screenplay award, I believe, at Cannes. At Cannes as yeah. well. Yeah. Wow.
2: And has basically, except for the Oscars, which of course are not going to recognize a movie this obscure and frankly this good, <laughs> it has rolled through award season last year, getting all kinds of recognition, been extremely praised. Before we start talking in depth, I will do my usual quick um, thumbnail round and see what you each thought about the movie. Dan, I know just from your Twitter that you loved and adored this movie.
0: Yes, it was my favorite movie of last year. Whoa. That's correct.
2: And it was on my top 10 list, too. I think, yeah, if I had to name just one, I'm not a ranker, but I think that this one would be hard not to put at the top. And June, me and Dan are two straight people raving about this lesbian movie, yet we have an actual lesbian in the
1: studio with us.
2: (laughs) Give us your lesbian stamped opinion.
1: On the lesbian scale of, uh, you know, scissoring to—no, okay, no. Um, Uh, I thought. It was I nice. want to know what's at the other end of the scale. Too. <laughs> so, me too. I don't even know. I have no idea. Oh, My God, I thought it was awesome. Yes. Excellent. Très française. Mm. <laughs> Et très bien.
2: <laughs> all right. Well, I don't want to go down too many rabbit holes with Céline, but I am going to be interviewing her this weekend for Criterion. And so I'm excited about that. And I went on a little journey. She, all of her movies right now, maybe because of the release of this on Valentine's Day, have been put on the Criterion streaming channel. So if you subscribe to that, you can watch her whole oeuvre to be a little more French. So all three of her previous movies, Water Lilies, Tomboy and Girlhood, I believe in that order, um, have been about adolescent girls and this is her first time making an adult love story uh, between two grown women one of whom i feel like we have to point this out even though it's gossip at the top of the show but adele anel who plays the object of desire of the the painter in portrait of a lady on fire is or possibly was, I'm not sure what their status is now, the real-life girlfriend of Celine Siama, which when you watch this movie, that is actually not just extraneous gossip. I think it it really weaves into the story in a way, since this is all about creating the portrait of someone with whom you are in love. Mm -hmm. So obviously, a different
1: layer is added when one's lover is the object of that desire. Yes,
0: being the subject is a subject of this movie.
1: Yes. And I learned this after watching it, and I think you were right that I would have had a different experience if I had known that. And uh, I think it's probably better for me not to have because I would have been having all sorts of thoughts. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, that is well, a I fascinating piece it. of I doctor. just liked
0: the sort of extra layer of directorial interest that that. I mean, mm-hmm. I would have loved the movie anyway, but knowing yeah. that in advance really helped me, I think, appreciate – A bunch of the choices that the movie made even more.
2: We'll get into this as we speak, but I think more than almost any movie I can think of, this is a movie that ties together theme and content at a very basic level. I mean, it's not a movie that has to work to achieve some sort of allegory that clunkily sits on top of the story, right? I mean, the story and the allegory really organically emerge from the same source. But we should start getting into specifics.
0: The thing that kicks the movie off, the dilemma that faces its main character It's like a great idea for a movie, and it's also so easy to understand as the defining metaphor of what this story is about. So the movie is about, it's set in the 1700s, yes?
2: Yes. They never say a date, which is interesting. There's no little legend that appears on screen, Hmm. but I've read in some of the production notes that it was supposed to be 1760, which is an interesting year to set it, because it's just right in the middle of the 18th century. It's pre-revolutionary France. I mean, it's not as if there were any sort of rumblings in the air about beheading the aristocracy at this point. So. The dilemma that Eloise, Adele Hanel's character, finds herself trapped in was very much the dilemma of the time and pretty much inescapable in the minds of, you know, members of the aristocracy.
0: So that dilemma is that she has returned home after a time in a convent because her older sister has died under somewhat mysterious circumstances. But she believes and most people believe that this older sister committed suicide. One reason that Eloise believes she committed suicide is that she was pledge. She was engaged to be married. Her mother planned to engage her to a Milanese noble. They are French. They live, I believe, off the coast of Brittany, but her mother is Italian. She's Milanese, and she came to France 20 years ago, and she wants to marry one of her daughters off to a Milanese noble so that she can move back to Milan, and also, to, I'm sure, to secure the family's fortunes. Mm-hmm. Eloise's older sister has killed herself, perhaps rather than face this fate, though it doesn't sound like so bad of a fate to me, necessarily. Milan's very nice. And Eloise returns back, and she's not that excited about this fate either. But in order to make this engagement happen, a portrait must be painted of this woman to send to Milan so that the nobleman can see it and say, oh, yeah, I'll marry that. And a portrait painter came to this island, came to the house and sat with her.
2: A male portrait painter. A male
0: portrait painter came and tried to sit with her for a week, but she refused to pose. And so no portrait could be made. And now a second portrait painter, a replacement, a woman named Marianne, played by Noemi Merlant, has come out to the island. And she is meant to paint the portrait. But she's told by La Comtesse, played by Valeria Galeno, Eloise's mom, that Eloise has not been told that's why Marianne is here. Marianne has to paint the portrait in secret. She's been told only that Marianne is here to go on walks with her to provide a little companionship, to be a friend of her a week. She must capture what glimpses she can of her subject and paint the picture without her subject ever knowing.
1: It's such a good premise, right? I mean, it's just such an excellent, excellent setup for a movie. And for a lesbian movie, it's also, you know, this idea of having to please a man to save her, which is something that we don't know that she – I mean, certainly this is – we should – just state that this is before any concept of lesbianism. This is not a, an alternative identity that's possible for them. It's just perhaps it seems to be a good chance that Eloise is attracted to women, but it's not necessarily because, no, I'm a lesbian I don't want to go off and be a wife but there is this whole element of all portrait painters have this task of, you've got to please your subject you've got to kind of flatter your subject but in this case, she also has to provide a look that will kind of Get her purchased in a sense. She has to please this this Milanese businessman with the painting that she makes. And if there's any conflict within her about that, then you know that makes for a very interesting kind of mood, or that kind of under, underscores the action of the film. Action,
0: <laughs> right? It's, there's action in this film. It's there's, very much. There's a... <laughs> so much action in this film.
1: <laughs> action.
2: Is there? Is there action? Well, I mean, for one thing, there's danger because there's, this, yes. the, the the cliffs of Brittany where this house is situated and where her sister hurled herself to her death right or fell to her death we're not quite sure which are just constantly present on their walks every day and there's a very early scene where you see Eloise running at full tilt th- toward the cliff
1: she right she always wanted to do that and Marianne said what die and she said, no, run.
2: Mm-hmm. That's such a great line, <laughs> yeah. especially because it rhymes in French. Mourir Um Yeah, so a lot is established just by the geography of the house and even the mysterious emptiness of the house, which yep. is something that haunted me. I mean, they're a wealthy family, yet the furniture is covered in sheets. It's all empty. There's no men around anywhere. Absolutely not. It's not quite clear to me whether this is a place that the women of the family are kind of sent away for parts of the year, but it doesn't seem to be the place where the actual wealth of the family resides
0: my take on it was that the comtesse has already prepared everything in their lives for the move to milan Mm. that she Mm. is praying is happening and so whatever staff they have have been dismissed or sent to milan that everything is starting to get ready to be packed that she's already made that move in her Mm -hmm. head and that the death of her older daughter through everything for a loop but she's still in this house where it's just her her daughter and the maid the maid who we should mention is a very important character in this movie sophie who's played by luana bajrami but it's just those women in the house and yes that emptiness combined with the emptiness of the vast water out in the distance and the cliffs that seem to surround the house on every side really tells part of the story and then when they do encounter other people on this island or in this place where they live. That creates a new kind of story for them when they start to deal with the other women, all women, who they encounter in the town that they live in.
2: Yeah, this is another place where I feel like the story of the film and the themes of the film are perfectly braided together. Because once Marianne takes that boat ride at the beginning of the movie, there's the great moment where her canvas falls into the water and she has to leap in and save it, right? Because her whole livelihood and her whole point of going is invested in those materials. But once she gets dropped off and heads to that almost island, I don't think it is an island, it's more like a a remote peninsula of Mm -hmm. some kind, but once she gets there, she's basically in uh, the place that Wonder Woman starts, you know, some sort of a utopian, all-female kind of excluded paradise, right? I
1: mean, it is. And yet there's no help. It's a place where you are all alone with other people. I mean, so on the boat when she's crossing to get to the house to get to her job, as you say, she jumps into the water. But like... it's all on her there's like
0: five guys in that boat yeah and yeah,
1: There's the <laughs> yeah. really and, and it really does seem very dangerous because the boat is you know being tossed and it seems quite dangerous i mean that's how the the canvases get out of the boat it's really a very dangerous passage it seems and the men are there's no way they're doing that and she doesn't say anything she nobody tells her we'll go and get him then like it's all on her and then when she finally gets to the house yeah, eventually the maid helps her, Sophie, who let to learn, like, an hour and 20 minutes in, we finally learn her name. I mean, that's a weird thing about this movie, that we get no clues. We don't get told where we are or when it is. Their names are parceled out with such tightness, but even there, she has to figure things out herself. Yeah. She eventually does get told, yes, this is what's going on, but there's so much autonomy that it's it's both inspiring and also a bit scary yeah
2: it's it's freedom but it's an artificial isolated freedom in this one place which in fact secretly from the outside is completely controlled by men and that again is communicated as you say very simply without ever telling us or really laying it on us very heavily but the only time you see men in this movie are in the frame right at the beginning rowing her across the rough water and then at the end in that scene in the
1: salon right the self colder at the end yeah
0: I mean, I think one thing that's left unstated, but which I at least read as a thing that was happening in this movie, is that the situation that la Comtesse and her daughter find themselves in, I think almost certainly is the result of a man. Right? It's almost certainly the result of her husband dying. At some point, her husband has died, and that has created a precarious situation for the family that she wants to resolve by marrying off a daughter to this nobleman in Milan. But... You know, as with Marianne's talk about halfway through the movie about how, because of her sex, there are certain subjects she can't paint mm-hmm. and certain things that she is not allowed to do. The movie is not overtly feminist in any way, yet, every character in it deeply believes in her own worth. And talks very frankly about the ways that she is trapped by a society that she doesn't exactly have words for. Mm-hmm. But she knows how she's trapped and she knows the ways that men have trapped her.
2: Right. And there are more men behind the scenes pulling strings that we hear about, for example, the father of Marianne's mm-hmm. character, right, who was also a portrait painter and who I think it said... Painted the wedding portrait yes. of the contest and her yes, husband.
0: Who yes. he appears to be a famous portrait painter. Mm-hmm. The kind of person who you wish you could hire, but you can't afford to so hire his daughter instead.
1: Yeah. Right. I have to say, though, in his case, he's maybe the only time where this off-screen man seems to actually be conveying positive effects. Because, for example, the fact that Marianne can take over her father's business, yeah. that gives her choices that Eloise doesn't have to skip right to the end in in a salon uh, situation, we learn that Marianne has exhibited one of her own paintings which would not be allowed because she exhibited it under the name of her father. And so... In that case, it's a man who's giving her options rather than limiting her options and just closing down what she can do.
2: Right. And it's so in spite of the fact that she seems to come from a lower class, some sort of I don't know what you'd call it, the bourgeoisie, the burger class or something. Right. She has much more social mobility
1: and freedom than Eloise does. Yeah. She can't go as high, but she also has way more options.
2: Shall we talk about the process by which they fall in love? Because as you say, June, this is another case of this movie not laying it on thick, not giving us a lot at a time and sort of doling things out in very small portions so that when they come, uh, you've really been waiting for them. And a couple of those early walks along the cliff that they take together, which are these Very complexly plotted walks because they're not just about two women who may be falling in love, but they're about surveillance, Mm -hmm. right? Because Mm -hmm. Marianne has, in a way, been hired to watch Eloise and make sure she doesn't hurl herself off any cliffs or run away or anything like that. And there's also this scoping of the person that you're going to paint, there's this artistic process going on where she's trying to gather details about the face that that she then has to go and secretly paint in private. So those early walk scenes are just so pregnant with meaning, right? And uh, there's a glorious, glorious shot in one of them. I'm sure you'll both remember. There's just such a great use of camera space that's a sort of semi-close-up on both of their faces. They're looking out to sea, and you see both of their profiles, and there's this moment that they're secretly checking each other out, and depending on who's looking at whom and who knows they're being looked at, you just sort of keep seeing a different face be in profile and then be in full face. It's one of those moments of great playfulness where it's the camera placement and the blocking itself that tells the story.
1: And that reminds me of something that kind of came up as I was watching this film, which it could have easily been... A much more basic version of itself in which it would be the kind of film that it's great to write like a Film Studies 101 essay about. So, for example, that makes me think, you know, and I probably even made a note that so much of the ideas about the two of them, one person is ahead, one person is behind. And this is even relevant because um, Sophie says that the sister... Was walking behind, and she just disappeared. And so, like, there's this concept of being ahead, being behind, that keeps coming up. uh, Sometimes, you know, because of the way they're looking at each other, because of the work too. That when Marianne is painting, eventually, Eloise, she is, of course, she's she's in the sense in front of her. And then when they become lovers, when they become closer, Marianne invites Eloise to be at the same level. So there is a lot of business around whether you're behind or ahead of someone. And then, of course, when they're in bed together, they're next to each other. Or in other situations, they're next to each other. So there's a lot of that placing of people, which you do, of course, as a painter. There's another scene later where Eloise sets up a tableau that recreates something that happened in life for a painting. And this is very much this concept of placing people and whether they're in front or behind it's just it's all very relevant and yet it's also beautiful it's not didactic it's not film studies 101 because it is so beautiful
2: speaking of being ahead versus being behind of course The big myth that ends up being embedded in this story is the Orpheus and Eurydice Mm -hmm. myth, Mm -hmm. which later on they read together around the fire with Sophie. It's the Ovid version of the myth. And that myth is all about who's ahead, who's behind, Mm -hmm. who's going to look behind. And uh, we'll get there. But, you know, the the kind of denouement of the movie really depends on that question of, you know, looking back at the Mm -hmm. person you love versus being able to move on and and Mm -hmm. looking forward.
0: So this relationship develops very slowly between these two, as you said, Dana. And in part, that's because we spend a long time along with Marianne trying to figure Eloise out, right? We know what Marianne needs. We know what she's trying to accomplish on this island. But as she is to Marianne, Eloise is something of a mystery to us. We don't know what drives her. We don't know what she wants out of this encounter. We don't know if she's a danger to herself. We start to learn, as Marianne does... About her fears about the upcoming marriage, her resentment of her mother, about the way that she mourns the future that she doesn't have, the way she loves music. And so we are starting to learn and fall in love with this person as Marianne does. Mm -hmm. But one lovely thing about this movie is that it does not rush that relationship at all, and it forces Marianne to tell the truth to the woman that she Mm is starting to fall for before anything can happen between them. So Marianne paints a portrait over the course of a couple of days based only on these sort of half-caught glimpses, often from behind, as you say, June. And it's a perfectly lovely portrait. You know, it looks a lot like Adèle Hadel, But there is something a little bit lifeless about it. And
2: it's like placid, you know, I mean, yeah. it's really strikingly painted. And there's a painter named Hélène Delmer who made all these paintings, apparently in real time. Mm-hmm. As the filming was happening, she was constantly painting in order to sort of keep up with the story. And it's her hands that you see when you see Marianne painting. But she's just so perfectly hit on what's wrong with that first portrait, because it's not a bad painting, as oh, yeah. you say. But there's something conventionally feminine and pretty about it, and there's something about her gaze that seems very settled and, I don't know, wifely. You know, it really does seem like something that you would give to a nobleman to show him, see, this is wife material, which is just not at all the vibe that Eloise gives off. I right. mean, a she's just who, this firely independent... Right.
0: We It's a character we mostly see standing on cliffs with the wind blowing her hair every which way and delivering these penetrating gazes at Mariana or at the camera. And so this version of her feels fake to us even as it probably feels perfect so la comtesse Mm -hmm. if she ever would have had a chance to see it but she doesn't because marianne asks the comtesse if she can show eloise the painting first she wants to come clean she wants to tell her the reason that she's been here and she shows her the painting and marianne is crushed when eloise the first question she asks is is that me which is funny but also a pretty potent question for someone who you are falling for Mm -hmm. to ask you Mm -hmm. and eloise does not love the painting she does not feel it captures her and when she leaves marianne in a fit of frustration wipes the face off the painting and asks eloise's mother for another chance and eloise's mother wants to fire her but eloise says no she can stay um i will pose for her in a way that i never have before I will let her paint me. I mean, clearly that's like a turning point of the movie, but that's also a moment for me where I saw, oh, I now start to see what Eloise wants out of this. She worries about what this painting will do to her life, but she wants this connection enough to risk that anyways. And that moment turns the plot of the movie, but it also turns... I think, us as viewers into equals with Marianne and Eloise as they find each other, as they Mm -hmm. find that romance.
1: Yeah. And Eloise wants to be seen. We learn that she never showed her face to the male portrait painter. She just absolutely resisted. But she wants Marianne to get her right. I think you're right, Dan, that she recognizes a connection that may... She also, I suspect, recognizes that this may be the only connection that she has. This is not something that she expects to have with the... Milanese nobleman but yeah it's something that she values and that she recognizes and I think too that there's an important moment when Marianne comes clean when she tells her I'm here to paint your portrait. Heloise does something that she had said she was going to do she'd always wanted to bathe in this rough sea and Marianne says to her well well can you swim and she says I don't know I said, what, you don't know how to swim? No, I don't know if I know how to swim. Which is very interesting, like referring to the unknown of even about yourself. But there's also an element of when Eloise goes out into this rough water, that it's important that Marianne doesn't chase her, that she just sits and lets her go into danger to be autonomous. You know, she trusts her in a way that other people haven't, that people have paid her to have companions on walks on the cliffs uh, because they don't think that she's... Safe with herself. You know, it's such a small thing, uh, but it it proves to. Eloise that Marianne respects her, and that's really lovely.
2: And this idea that Eloise's identity is emerging over the course of the film, right? Her identity as a lesbian and as a, a subject, just a, a speaking subject who has the right to not be married off to, to whatever guy. Who
0: has the right to not be a subject if she wants, mm-hmm. but to be a subject if she wants.
2: Right. I feel like that's all really materialized in these several images that we have of The painting being done, but with her face completely blurred out. That's how it looks after Marianne destroys it, because she's upset that her first placid version was not accepted by the subject. And don't we also see that in the abandoned painting by the man who
1: never finished it? It's it's almost like a whiff of smoke.
0: One of the first things Marianne sees when she gets to the house is the abandoned painting that the male portrait painter attempted, which is a beautiful version of the dress that Eloise is to wear and her folded hands, but with just a void where the face is meant to be.
2: Yeah, it's almost from something outside the movie, like mm-hmm. a, a horror movie kind of image, this idea of a perfectly painted portrait of someone with no face. You well, know? it's a
0: ghost, right? Mm-hmm. And, the, and the movie is a ghost story, even though, spoiler, no one dies, mm-hmm. right? On multiple occasions, we see that Eurydice-esque image of Eloise glowing in a hallway in the dress that she will eventually wear to her wedding, Marianne doesn't even know what that means, but it's a specter that she sees over and over again, anticipating the loss that she is going to face. And those are ghost story scenes, too. Those are scenes from a ghost story movie. That painting with its missing face, that's from a ghost story. It's exactly how it reads, as uncanny and spooky. And it reminds you over and over again that there's a a loss akin to death coming up. In this movie, and that because we are being delivered this story within the frame of Marianne remembering it, we are experiencing that loss along with her.
2: Right. And it is all being delivered within the memory of her remembering it because we haven't Mm -hmm. talked about it yet, but there is that cold open Mm -hmm. of the painting class many years later, we don't know how many years, that Marianne is giving to a bunch of young girls. Mm And one of them going through some stacked canvases at the back of the room finds the eponymous Portrait of the Lady on Fire and asks about it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this movie affords multiple occasions for that classic
1: (laughs) date night mumble. (laughs) And the thing is that even though we only see that from a distance, we don't get a close-up. Like, it doesn't seem like a very good painting. At least that was my impression of it. Like, it seemed very hacky, uh, that particular piece um compared to the portrait that she's painting yeah and that everything else that we see um it just felt like yeah that wasn't a very good it seemed like
0: her attempt to figure out a way to portray this thing that she couldn't
1: yeah and so she's upset or mad when the student brings it out not only i think because it reminds her of a time that's you know very poignant and very emotional but also because she's not that happy with that painting that didn't Kind of capture what was going on
2: we need to talk about the night that that painting came about and in order to do that we need to get into sophie yes and i feel like in order to get into sophie's experience and her portion in the middle of the movie where she becomes really the most significant character for a short stretch we should talk about the cats away portion of the movie where the contest leaves for an undisclosed reason for a five-day trip and uh, that's just about at the moment that the two young women are starting to realize that they have some kind of connection Um, it's also the moment that Sophie reveals to the two of them, or maybe it's just to Marianne, that she's pregnant against her will, right? And Marianne asks her, well, do you want to be and do you want to do something about it? And so we start to get this sense that the slightly older and slightly wealthier women are going to help find a way for this servant to get an abortion.
1: And it also is an opportunity for Marianne to reveal to Eloise that she is sexually experienced, that this has happened to her too, which Eloise has to have you known love. She says it that way. And then suddenly they're off again. We're now walking off on the cliffs, but this time it's with a purpose because they're looking for some plants, uh, which Sophie Knows what they are and she knows how they should look and what stage of life they have to be in um, so that, you know, to be an abortificant, however you pronounce that word.
2: And how is it that they end up at the fireside with all the singing women? That was part of the same excursion where they're looking for the, the herbs no, for Sophie's it's abortion. After the herbs
0: don't work. Yeah. So they brew, you know, a tea out of those herbs that they have found. Sophie does that insane thing where she's, like, hanging by her hands from a rafter as long as she can. While, meanwhile, Eloise and Marianne are having this deep conversation that's interrupted by Sophie falling over. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, it's, like, comedic but also awful. But it doesn't take. She feels she must still be Mm -hmm. pregnant. And so they go into the village... Because Sophie knows that there's a woman there who can perform abortions. She finds that woman at the fireside and asks her, am I still pregnant and what can I do? And the woman says, yes, you are still pregnant and you can come to my house in two days and I will do this for you. But that is how they come into the village and they come to – in a very – Yes, late at night in a beautiful gathering of a bunch of village women around a big bonfire – and we don't know anything else about it. We just know these women are there. There are no men to be seen. And in the middle of this gathering, the women break into this beautiful song.
1: Which at first doesn't seem like a song. At right, first, sounds like so, like, it sounds like the humming of bees. Yeah, yeah, at first it did seem like something from nature, which I guess it is. Like a drone. A, 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 and then suddenly it transforms into a very beautiful song that people seem to know or to be able to just find their way into
2: It's an extraordinary moment in the movie because there's so little music. There's no extra diegetic music, Mm -hmm. right? There's no music laid in by Celine Sciamma, the filmmaker. All the music that we hear is music that the characters are hearing, too. And there's only three instances of music that I can Mm -hmm. think of in the movie, and they're all incredibly important. One is that song, Around the Fire. And the piece that they sing is really striking because it feels at once... Period appropriate and not period appropriate. It seems strangely modern. It also is incredibly professionally sung for a bunch of old ladies around a campfire. Um, But it's a really haunting moment, and one of the moments where the music in this movie just appears out of nowhere. It's a very silent movie in general, right? Extremely spare sound design, and just really creates this sort of rapturous witch-like sense, almost yeah. as if it's a coven meeting yeah. around the fire.
0: So yeah. the piece is called La Jeune Fille en Feu. It was co-written by an electronic music producer called Peril One, who worked on Celine Sciamma's previous films Water and Tomboy, and then a composer named Arthur Simonini, because who had experience with choirs, I guess. I'm getting this all from a wonderful piece that Matthew Dessin wrote on Slate about this song. It's inspired by Leggetti's Requiem, which you know from 2001, but it's not a direct rip of that. It's not an adaptation of that. That was their inspiration, and instead, what they created was this, to me, what sounded like a somewhat authentically old folk version mm. of a kind of hymn, like a, a folk song hymn. And they're singing non possum fugere, which is basically like "I am trapped, or I cannot escape." And then at the coda, they sing nos resurgemus, which means "We rise,"
1: which is incredibly on the nose, and of course. You know, had to be in Latin or else it would have been too obvious.
2: But in the kind of spiritual exaltation that you feel in that scene and that you feel the characters are feeling in that scene, I think we get to another of the big themes of this movie, which is not just women falling in love and finding freedom and an escape from the patriarchy in both love relationships and friendships like they make with Sophie, right? These mm-hmm. alternate social structures, but also women making art. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's a moment that you hear these women around the campfire, you know, really creating this work of beauty together. Yeah. And that helps inspire the pan- Painting that we'll talk about uh, that comes about later,
1: right? Because Eloise kind of loses herself because we know from before that she loves music. She doesn't necessarily know much about music. She doesn't seem to be able to play any instruments. She's or, never
0: heard an orchestra.
1: Yeah, she, yeah,
2: so, which is, really points to her isolation. Right? Yeah. She's a member of the upper class, mm-hmm. and yet she has not been able to be any part of the the culture that that should make her yeah, privy to.
1: We learn that she. Goes to mass not because she's religious, she has no religion, but because that's the only place where she can hear music. And in an earlier uh, moment, Marianne plays under the dust covers. She plays a harpsichord and she plays effectively the summer section of The Four Seasons, right, by Vivaldi, yeah. and kind of narrates it in this beautiful way where she's talking about, oh, there are the bees. You know, in that way that it's, I love it when people do that. I mean, it's the only good thing in Philadelphia, you know, when, when Tom <laughs> Hanks talks about, you know, that great aria. Like, I just love when people can do that. It's a great art and the she does it only
0: beautifully. Good thing. <laughs> it's great. Um, but,
1: and, and Such like,
0: a great rip.
1: <laughs> and, uh, and and Eloise is so moved by that. I mean, as we are too, that's beautiful, of course. Like, that's anybody would get their panties off when they hear that. You know? I mean, come on, uh, Marianne,
2: you did it. Um, Bust out the harpsichord. <laughs> <exactly. and laughs> I
0: mean, she only slipped her fingers exactly. under the cover of the harpsichord, Exactly. you know what
1: I'm saying. What a babe. So when we're at the bonfire, Eloise is so moved that she loses track of where she is, and she effectively steps into the fire, and, and her dress is on fire. It's kind of weird because she doesn't seem to receive any injuries or any harm from this. Maybe that's the benefit of these big skirts. But she is got to indeed... burn through
0: like seven. Layers
1: <laughs> <we get to laughs> exactly. I mean, a brief sidebar on the clothes in this
2: movie, which are quite remarkable. I mean, they're period costumes. They're designed by Dorothee Giraud. Apparently, Siyama also has a very close hand in costume design in all her movies. So I'm sure she worked closely with her. But a little bit like the emptiness of the house. I feel like the costumes are deliberately stripped of specific signifiers. You know, there's no frills. There seem to be no sort of like decorations or buttons or lace. They're just these very deconstructed ideas of clothing of the time. And there are a couple of scenes, especially some erotic ones later on that involve the unlacing of corsets, et cetera. But this is not a movie that fetishizes feminine fashion, right? I mean, it sort of breaks down... 18th century female garments into these very basic and again somewhat modern structures it's almost like it's the clothing equivalent of that ligati piece yeah, being yeah. repurposed
1: right. as a piece of folk song or he-
0: sad scenes with the corsets being laced up again. Yeah, of yeah, course
1: yes right yeah, that's a, indeed a, a very moving scene, and and you know the reappearance of the white dress, the, the the presentiment of the wedding dress. But there are these scenes like when we first see the posing dress, this green dress, which is we learn the only fancy dress that Eloise has because she's been in the with the Benedictines and only has convent clothes. There's this great scene at the beginning where it appears that the, the dress is coming down the stairs on its own. And then we see that actually Sophie is holding it. She's not wearing it. She's just carrying it as if it is a, almost like a person. It's, but then the, later
0: she does wear it when she poses as yeah. is trying to paint without seeing Eloise. Another great thing about the costume design is that there's just a really limited number of costumes. Yeah, and, yeah. It accurately reflects what life was like in this place When, if you're Eloise, you only have one fancy dress. When, if you're Marianne, you brought everything with you in one bag on Mm -hmm. a boat. Mm -hmm. And so you really only have two things to wear.
1: And I loved the penny that she has that she can't always wear because until she kind of gets relaxed with everybody, she has to keep her dress revealed when other people are watching her. But once she has confidence with the people, she can wear her lovely coverall, uh, which is such a great piece of clothing. Her painting smart. Her painting smart, yeah. But you also know all of that had to fit in that tiny bag that she has to schlep. In general, this
2: movie pays a lot of attention to material culture and the material culture of the time. And I love, for example, the role that food plays in it, which is not exactly pointed up. There's not close-ups of the table or anything like that. Um, But there's a lot of attention paid to what little food they have. It's a little bit like the clothes, you know. There's no refrigerator, obviously. There's just these small amounts of locally produced food that are sort of sitting there waiting to be eaten. I really craved that early meal that Marianne has where she just has a hunk of cheese. Cheese and bread and a little cup of wine. It looks so great. But, you know, the meals that they make over that kind of chafing dish together Mm -hmm. with the maid and they each serve themselves a bit of. There really is, I think, a sense of the sparse material culture of that time, even for people that were members of the upper class.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
2: Laundry? Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh?
0: Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino.
2: So we got to talk about Sophie's abortion, because that's kind of the next big plot point, And is also really the culmination of a lot of themes in this movie, as I was saying, the art making, right, um, the female friendship, the isolation and desperation of women that are free in a way on this strange island of all women, but you know, that out in the real world are still obviously subject to the whims of men, including whatever man it was that impregnated Sophie. Um, we don't know if that was you know, a consensual relationship or how it all came about, but we do know that she very much wants out of that situation now. And she's quite young, Sophie. She seems to be a teenager,
1: maybe. It's it's really hard to read, but she's much smaller than Marianne and Eloise, and so it really comes across that she, she seems like she's from another generation, whether she is or she isn't. She
0: just reads as young.
2: Right, and she's maybe slightly more childlike than them, maybe more sheltered,
1: although she also seems, but she
0: uh, she also knows who does the abortions in town. Yeah. Right.
1: She knows what to do when you have your period and it hurts or you want to stop it, I guess, and wasn't quite sure what she was doing with the cherry stone. Right. She's like
0: childlike, but she clearly has more experience than Eloise, for example.
2: Right. So they end up visiting this woman who is the abortion giver in the village and there's this really incredible and quite contemplative scene. I mean, not sort of the grueling, gory bloodbath scene that you might have expected. It's not Vera Drake, you know. There's a strangely almost peaceful, but also melancholy scene of her going through this abortion at the woman's house. The most extraordinary detail of which to me was the little baby on the bed. And I don't know if that was something that was thought of at the time or if it was something that Siama scripted in. But, you know, this idea that in those days when abortion was something that you went and did at the house of the one lady, the midwife, presumably, you know, the sort of person who helped birth babies and have people not have babies in the town, has babies herself. And that everything takes place in this matrix of, you know, multi-generational families living together. Yeah,
1: there's no fake bed in a, in a doctor's office. It's just the bed. Right. It's the bed that she sleeps in and that her babies are playing on. And right. That, yeah. It's just in the house. It's probably the only room in the house.
2: Just the extraordinary... Irony, but also kind of the gentleness of this moment that as Sophie is undergoing this procedure, you know, she's looking over to her right and there's this chubby little rosy baby just staring into her eyes, holding Holding her hand. hand. Mm -hmm.
0: And while that's happening, Marianne and Eloise are in the room and you remember what happens between them, which presages what is about to happen in the next couple of scenes, which is that Marianne looks away and Eloise tells her, no, look, look at what's happening.
1: Mm -hmm. Regarde.
2: Right. And interestingly, it's the artist who looks away, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, I don't know what you'd want to call her, the subject Subject. of the artist who who somehow sees that this is what needs
0: to be seen. The artist who has talked about how because she is not allowed to paint naked men, the traditional great subjects of art are not available to her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then that same night back at the house, Eloise sort of presents to her a different way of thinking about the subjects of great art. When Sophie can't sleep, and they can't sleep, and the fire is going, and they don't know what to do, Eloise arranges herself and Sophie on a mat on the floor in the exact positions that the midwife and Sophie were in during the abortion, and she tells Marianne, paint this. And I love that as a kind of argument about... Well, what are the true subjects of great art? And can we change the way we think about those things? And Marianne paints a dashed off but lovely painting on a board of that moment between those two women. And I think sees and starts to understand a lesson about the art that she can make, which we then see happen in her very different version of Orpheus and Eurydice that we Mm -hmm. see at the end of the film. Mm
2: -hmm. Right. I mean, do you remember? I'm not quite sure where it is, but it's when they're starting to really fall in love. I think it's maybe after they've slept together for the first time that there's a moment that Eloise says to Marianne, do all lovers feel like they're inventing something? Mm -hmm. And it's such a romantic line, Mm -hmm. but also very directly points to the fact that they are inventing something, not just in their own minds of sort of discovering what it is to be in love or discovering that, you know, queer love exists, but that they are collaborators, you know, that you you get the sense that not unlike Celine Siama and Adele and lovers in real life who made something beautiful together, that if they had been able to pursue a life together, they would have made things together, Mm -hmm. you know, and that they would have discovered or invented a new way of making art, which is something that I think Eloise is pushing for in that moment of the the rendering of the abortion.
0: Remember that line early in the movie when Marianne complains that she hasn't even seen Eloise smile yet. And Sophie says, well, have you tried being funny? And there's this (laughs) recurring theme throughout the movie that all those exchanges require two people. There's collaboration happening everywhere. When Eloise finally laughs, it's because Marianne's relationship with her allows them to laugh together. When they finally make this painting good, it's because the subject and the painter collaborate together. It's not just a matter of of observing a passive subject and then painting while they're not aware of it.
1: Again, later on when they are more intimate, literally, and when they know that the end is near, when, you know, mother's returning, they're going to have to say goodbye. They're in bed, effectively. And Marianne picks up one of her slates and does a very nice, but again, one of these nice, very sketchy uh, portraits of uh, Eloise. And Eloise says, well, I want one of you. And, you know, she sets up a mirror and she makes her do one. So it has to be mutual. It can't just be the painter and the subject. There is this feeling of mutuality, which is new and different. And again, I think you're right, would be something different, would be a new kind of art that unfortunately doesn't really get made.
0: Here's this movie, though, as yes, an example of that yes, kind of art, yes.
1: right? I insist, Dan, that there isn't a lot of action in the movie. Toward the end, in the final coda, there is, like, suddenly all this plot that unspools, like, wait, what? I just <laughs> blinked and, like, there was more plot than in the rest of the film altogether. Uh, and there is a, a little bit of mutuality there that we find that um, we, I get, we'll get to it when we get to that moment, but that actually Eloise has has kind of made a reference back to... right. It's kind of put some code out there that only Mariam would ever recognize if she were to see it.
2: The portrait that she sketches on page 28 of the mm-hmm. book, right, that becomes the keepsake mm-hmm. that Eloise can take away is a self-portrait. It's a portrait it's a of Marianne of her
0: reclining nude in bed, and she paints it based on a reflection of a mirror that <laughs> Eloise has placed right over her crotch.
2: Fig leaf style, there's yes. Fig
0: leaf style. Yeah. And so there's this beautiful shot of Eloise's body, blurry, out of focus in the background, but then the mirror with Marianne's face as she intently sketches herself perfectly in focus in the mirror. It's like a great moment of focus pulling. Mm. Um, But it's also like such a great perfect encapsulation of like 27,000 different themes of this movie in one shot. Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah. Not unlike the the mise-en-scène to be French again of that moment I mentioned earlier where the geography of the turning faces on screen says everything that you need to know about the relationship. There are other mirror moments like that too, I believe, when the various portraits are being carried up and down and uh, and placed in the kind of studio room that Marianne's painting in, there's many moments where you see something only in a mirror before you see it in real life mm. and just a lot of attention paid to kind of deflecting the gaze of exactly what you're supposed to look at and the movie is just so smart and exquisite in that way. I just love to see a movie that's smarter than I am as a viewer, <laughs> yeah, you know, that
1: yes, never yes. gives you that feeling of yeah. we get it, yeah. you know? No, totally. In fact, yeah, it's it's very flattering in that regard and you brought this up earlier, both of you, you know, that the Ovid story of metamorphoses uh, is something that it's part of their lives uh, when it's just the three of them in their little, you know, playtime because Eloise is reading it aloud for them. And it's a lovely moment because it's like the power of literature. They're so into it. Yeah, and Sophie's and,
0: never heard the story yeah. before. She just wants to know what the mm, fuck happened. Why did
1: he look? Mm. Why did he turn? And so what it's the, that <laughs> asshole? Why did he do <laughs> that? And it's about rules. Like the rules say, like, why did he break the rules? So this is a story of Orpheus and Eurydice and um, which I have to just bring up the most pretentious thing I've ever said, although I believe I've said that line before in, in this kind of situation. I recently saw Orfeo Eduridice at the Met, the opera. It's which, in Monteverdi? Um, no, it's um, Gluck. Um, but it's these days usually played as a trouser role that Orfeo is a mezzo, a mezzo-soprano singing um, a love song you know the greatest love with his wife Um, but we know that it's a woman and i recently saw it with jamie barton who's an openly bisexual singer who played it very romantically very i would say very gay in a way um and that was so great just to you know this thing which has these other resonances of forbidden love or you know love that will overcome all manner of obstacles and you know what a fantastic very subtle way of introducing that
0: you remember what eloise says uh after sophie gets so angry that uh, orpheus looked back she says well i mean maybe she wanted him to maybe mm. she said something to catch his attention mm. and i love the idea of eloise being like well i mean maybe eurydice would just rather be in hell
2: to
0: <laughs> 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 so this guy this Milanese noble yeah. orpheus
2: <laughs> that is really key what she says because it introduces agency into the story of orpheus and eurydice right she's not just a a beautiful woman receding into the night because the man made this bad choice of looking back. She asked him to look back. And, of course, it also comes up in the last moment between the two women, which we'll get to, which, oh, man, I get chills just thinking about that scene. I love it. Um, what else do we want to talk about between reading Orpheus, painting Sophie, I mean, and the right end right of sex.
1: the movie? <laughs> yes. uh, which is done very, you know, it's it's not an whatever rated movie like they're naked but we don't other than kissing they're not you know it's not an explicit it's not blue is the warmest color it's really interesting because i
0: remembered it as being a lot more explicit than it actually was and i was like man i wish i could like show my 14 year old this movie i think it's so interesting but no way there's way too much sex in it but then i watched it a second time and there actually isn't that much sex in it.
2: yeah there's a lot of naked lounging sort of post-sexual
0: stuff but there's like a great spit swap and kiss but there's no um (laughs) I guess that's an inappropriate term in <laughs> context. But yeah, so now I sort of think I will watch it with Lyra. Like I think that she would get a lot out of this movie. So they fall in love. They share these magical two days together, basically, Oof. while also creating art, while also finishing this portrait, um, including you know both of them assuming the position together of the subject, both of them assuming the position of the painter, both of them standing behind the canvas looking at it and talking about it. And then the painting is done, and the relationship is done, and Marianne straps Eloise into her corset one more time because her mother has come home. Her mother loves the portrait. She says she pays Marianne her money. She asks Eloise to come with her, and Eloise says, oh, can I just stay one more moment? She says, no, come with me now. I have something to show you. Marianne gathers her things. She goes to say one final goodbye, and in that room, Eloise is standing in her wedding dress, the wedding dress that we have seen, that Marianne has seen in these spectral images before. Mm. And they hug each other goodbye, desperately, but not trying to reveal anything. Marianne walks down the stairs with her bag over her shoulder, and as she opens the door, she hears Eloise behind her on the stairs, and she says,
2: Turn around. Turn
0: around. And she does. And we see that same image of her, of Eloise, in the wedding dress for just a second, and then the door slams and it goes dark. And that's the last moment we see in that time.
2: Is there an actual fade to black, or does it just go dark because the door closes?
0: I think we don't know, but
2: but I there is that, that sense of being a, a, a very Eurydicean sense of being pulled back yes, into into a dark space. It's,
0: it's sudden and jarring, and I don't know if it's because Marianne closes the door because she can't take it, or because Celine Chiama closes the shutter to take us away but that is the it's moment that sense of, of
2: receding old. into the yes. darkness yeah and it's a really powerful ending because the Eurydice parallel is not pointed up but it's obvious there also I want to see it again to confirm this but I believe that she says tourne toi," you know that she speaks in the informal two right. at that moment and yes. they've been vouvoying each other yes, the entire time
0: they for almost the entire movie but yeah. I think toward the end and especially in that moment they tourne and it's very notable. Of course, and, there's like no way to translate that in English. Yeah,
1: I miss that completely because I, I earlier said to Dan, oh man, could you believe all that vooing? And he said, well, except <laughs> I have missed it. So maybe for the international audience, that wouldn't be overplayed, but very subtle.
2: Very yeah, subtle. and just one of those moments where, you know, this movie gets the details right. It's thinking about every linguistic and visual detail. Mm-hmm. Um, extraordinary. The movie could have ended right there, and I mm-hmm. thought that that tourne and, and rushing back into the dark would be the ending, and it would have been a satisfying one. But I'm Except really glad... Have
0: left out the best thing I've ever seen in the movie. <laughs> exactly. What? <laughs> exactly.
2: So then we have to get to the coda and the musical moment of this movie that is just so transcendent. Oh, that's not
0: even oh, the yeah? musical moment yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm talking about page 28 yeah so earlier when they're lounging when she paints that self-portrait of herself for eloise she paints it on page 28 of her book and she says you can always look at this and remember me and years later the other end of the frame is marianne in milan living her life and she goes to a salon where one of her paintings is being shown and then paging through the catalog she sees another painting listed and she goes and it is revealed to her as it is revealed to us it is a later painting of Eloise with her daughter done probably at the bequest of her husband and we are struck as Marianne is by this painting by how beautiful she still is how much older she still is how different it is from the painting that Marianne made how much it resembles the first painting Mm -hmm. she made but then we zoom in closer and we see that Eloise has given Marianne, who she doesn't know will ever see this painting, a gift. And that gift is she is holding a book in her lap. And in the sort of classic Renaissance tradition of coded messages delivered via art, she has held the book open to page 28. And that moment is Mm -hmm. the moment that just, like, sent me, like, into tears. (laughs) in the theater. And I don't know that I've ever had like a a tiny little plot revelation hit me that hard.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's another of those moments where the detail is all. And again, the movie could have ended there, but then we wouldn't have gotten, (laughs) then we wouldn't have gotten my moment that, yeah, I think that as far as just pure ecstatic transport in a movie in 2019, it has to be the very ending of this Mm -hmm. movie, which is, on this same visit to Milan, I'm kind of assuming it's a visit. Yeah, I feel like you're right. if she lived she's in there Milan, to, she to go went. to the salon. She would have snuck into her house. She'd be yeah. stalking her, yeah. right? Um, but on that same night, they go to. Or
1: separately, I mean, Marianne right. goes to the. Well, we don't know what it's going to be. I figured it was going to be the opera. Right. Right. Thought it would be. Being a bass person, I thought it would be Alfeo Eduridice or something. Sort of <laughs> but no, come on, much better.
2: And so the musical piece being performed this night in Milan in this gorgeous opera house with, you know, just so perfectly made for the sight lines of, you know, mm-hmm. people checking mm-hmm. each other out across right. different balconies, right. et cetera, is Vivaldi's Four Seasons, which we heard a little bit of on the the harpsichord earlier between the two women. I mean, Vivaldi's Four Seasons is one of those extremely familiar pieces of Baroque music that's been used in so many movies and so many dentist's offices. You know? (laughs) And it's in a way sort of the Monet's water lilies of classical music where it's become so over-familiar we don't hear it anymore. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, I mean, it's for one thing, is a really great performance of it by whatever orchestra they got. But just because of the meaning that it's taken on, you know, that it's about a storm that was described Mm -hmm so dramatically, as you say, in the scene between them and a scene about um, a thunderstorm and passion and being kind of overwhelmed by the elements, right? And there's just this long, just mercilessly beautiful shot of Eloise's face as seen, we assume, by Marianne from across the opera house, just listening and sort of shuddering in in passion, in sadness, you know, in, in reflection on the time of her life and the possibility of her life that's been lost and her associations with this piece of music. And it is a really... Gorgeous And in a way, emotionally cathartic piece of music. And you just listen to her listen for the entire time and watch her listen. And, uh, and that's the final image of the movie.
0: There are a bunch of amazing things that happen there. I think choosing the four seasons was such a good choice, not only because of the meaning of the music, but because it has to do a bunch of jobs there. For us, right, we have to be able to identify that piece Mm -hmm, of music mm -hmm. as the thing that we heard a half ago, her playing on the harpsichord. The fact that she narrated it and told us the story of the music allows us to make that connection. Mm -hmm. The fact that to us it's something a little bit familiar helps us make that connection that we otherwise might struggle to make. But what's also happening during that scene and what I love so much about Eloise's response is it's not that she immediately thinks back. It's said first she has to recognize the mm-hmm. piece, mm-hmm. as we do. Mm-hmm. She probably, because it's 1760 or whatever, she never heard that piece again after the time that it was played for her on the harpsichord. She never told her it was all these four seasons. Right. She doesn't know how to find it. She can't, like, stream it's it. okay.
1: She can just shizam uh, it. Right. Um, and,
0: so, <laughs> and so this is probably the first time she's ever heard it since then. And she remembers it just as clearly as we do. And the recognition that comes to her mm-hmm. and then the sadness that comes to her and then – the happiness at the end, she ends that scene smiling. Mm-hmm. Even though tears are running down her face, mm-hmm. she is smiling and like the gift that that is to us, the audience, and to that character to let us walk out of this knowing that no matter how sad the separation of these two characters is, that that memory is one that will console and sustain her for the rest of her life mm-hmm. is like so wondrous. Yeah. That scene really sent me on a real wild ride. Yeah,
2: yeah, it is. It's It feels like a ride watching her and also because it's a phenomenal piece of acting yes, on Adele yes, and Elle's yes, part, yes, right? Yes. I mean, I don't know where she's going in her method to dredge up the emotions that that cross her face there. But it's so much more than sort of I'm moved by this piece of music. It's like entire stories and histories are scrolling through her brain. It also made me think for the first time of Vivaldi, who, again, we think of as this sort of nice, pleasant Baroque composer, as a really passionate composer. There's something very sexual about that kind of descending... Figure that it occurs again I mean, and again no. in the in yeah, the summer.
1: Exactly. <laughs> well, and also that he had this weird life of like composing in Venice with his orchestras of girls. Like I'm sure there are other elements that if only I knew more. I could. oh I don't know my Vivaldi gossip. Now have to look up some
0: Vivaldi <laughs> gossip now.
1: <laughs> and just to get back to to Eloise, which I agree with everything you both said. Very very beautiful. Just amazing acting in that way that when you're going to put acting so much in the spotlight, it has to be brilliant, and it was beyond what you could have hoped for again just as you said it it gives you this message and it also kind of sends you back to where at some point um there had been this somebody said you know regret and and eloise said no not regret remember yeah and so mm-hmm. it is you know yeah re- just remember just memory right it's, and so it ends up being this this
2: really tragic but strangely uplifting message about the power of art yeah, yeah right
1: absolutely
0: So anyways, the movie's pretty good.
1: Yes, (laughs) We've talked now about it longer than it ran. Do you recommend it at all?
2: (laughs) We have. We've talked longer than the movie itself runs.
0: We have not. We have not, but not that much shorter. It is two hours long. I could talk about it for another hour. (laughs) We should probably cut it off. Yeah,
2: I mean, I just really hope that even people who resist subtitled movies, There's you know, not that
1: much to read, they don't no, say that much. no, true. it's true.
2: You don't need to even understand the language practically no, no. to get what's going on. True. But you know, even if you're someone who I know that when I started to post rapturously about this movie on Twitter, it was just it's very mockable to sort of say like you've got to see this the French lesbian yeah. movie set in
0: the
2: 1700s. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> this incredibly spare, you know, artistic lesbian French mm-hmm. period film. I mean, it does sound like it's sort of for the art house specialist but it's opening on Valentine's Day for a reason I can't imagine a better date movie it would be so romantic to see this for the first time with a person that you were crushing on or cared about and then just go have drinks and talk about it I mean that He'll is a you put
1: stuff in your armpits now.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that
2: night is going to end up with a mirror in front of somebody's crotch oh, that's all I'm saying
0: Yeah, if you are looking to get lucky anyone this is definitely the movie to go to and then to later lose your lover in a tragic uh, societal mishap and never see them <laughs>
1: Except through art. Except yeah. through art.
2: All right. Well, I don't know when I've talked to two people who are as completely with me on on uh, the beauty and brilliance of a movie. I'm really glad that neither of you are here to be haters.
0: Fuck haters on this movie. <laughs> they're, they're wrong.
2: And I would just send people, again, to not only seeing this movie, but while you get the chance, go on Criterion and watch the previous three Celine Siyama movies. They all, in their own way, are just as artful, thoughtful, beautiful I feel like she just got a very strong emerging filmography and she's somebody that if you care about movies you should be keeping an eye on Alright, right, June, Dan, thanks for coming in to Spoil with me, let's do it again soon
1: oh, Thanks for giving me this opportunity to uh, relive this movie, i spent now Adieu, adieu, adieu. remember adieu. me A jamais <laughs>
2: Our producer today was Rosemary Belson. Our engineer was Daniel Schrader. If you have ideas for movies that you would like us to spoil or TV shows you'd like us to spoil at Slate in the future, you can always write us at spoilers at slate.com.
1: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?
1: Sorry, sorry,
2: we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.